Liam Bullock, you say um, in the acknowledgements of Twinned with Reykjavik, Stoke City FC, the Icelandic years, 1999 to 2006, that you wrote this book on a tiny desk in your bedroom in Barcelona. Uh, what was your wife doing at the time? What does she do? She's a languages teacher, so she was in the living room on the dining room table teaching Spanish via Zoom or Skype or something like that. So um, I had to contend with that and she had to contend with my thinking out loud at times. Who's her favourite player from the Icelandic era? Oh, I mean, it's hard for her to choose, I imagine. Mm. But um, <laughs> no, she started reading the book. She's um, she's um, working her way through it. So uh, maybe by the end of it, she'll have one. She was more of a fan of the um, the later years of, of Bojan and Mark Muniesa. Mm. Which um, I think I remember seeing... Did I, did I ever go to watch Watford Stoke at the Vic? I know we did quite well for a few seasons. Uh, we would always beat Stoke. But what's your view of the Pozzo family? Because we brought in some experienced managers, experienced continental players, and we've bounced back up at the first attempt, whereas um, Stoke City are still resolutely in the championship. Yeah, and for Stoke, there's... Um there's sort of this issue of we seem to be stuck in our ways as well. We don't often think outside the box, whereas Watford have something going on that seems to be working. You know, you come under a lot of criticism when you sack a manager, but then you appoint somebody and it, it's worked. We'll see how it goes for you this season, of course, because the, the big thing is staying in the Premier League and, and sort of sustaining um, a run there. But it's exciting. I mean, maybe I'm sure there'll be a book out one day for for these years at Watford at the moment. I don't guess. Maybe that's the book I should have written because we're coming up to 10 years under the Pozzos. The problem is Gino doesn't give interviews. He's given like three interviews in eight years. He lets the CEO, Scott Duxbury, do the talking uh, and the chief recruiter. We had several players who have played for Watford and then Stoke. Uh, Tommy Mooney was sent off on his debut. Were you at that game? I was. I think that was... Was that Burnley away um, for Stoke? I think it was Tony Pulis who signed Mooney on loan for us, and um, yeah, he had some he had some name recognition from his time at Watford. He did okay, I think. And also in that playoff winning team, Alan Smart. I completely forgot he's a former player of Watford. Took us up uh, as a substitute appearance at Wembley. Uh, did he do anything at all? No, not really. <laughs> he was involved in um, a few few match day squads and he might have even been involved when we lost 6-1 to Wigan which is never a thing to remember as a Stoke City fan but no we, we definitely had some better Watford associated players at the time I think that came a little later so Gifton Noel Williams was one of Tony Pulis's early signings and, and played a lot of games and, and did well for us it could be a frustrating player as you probably remember but he was good for a goal the story is that Elton John paid for his knee operation. Wow. Well, there you go. Because he was so promising at Watford and he just had a touch of the Michael Owens. And he, was, he, was, he is so beloved at Watford. Yeah, he was one of those that was like really good on championship manager when he was young. So <laughs> they obviously saw something in him as well. Yeah, and future Watford captain Johnny Eustace, who had captained Coventry when he was very young, why did he move to Stoke? Was it to play Tony Pulis football? So, yeah, Tony Pulis brought him in um, at 
the start of his first full season in charge and John Eustace was brilliant and we loved him um, I remember his debut we won 3-0 at Derby and he was he just ran the game and I, I remember turning to my brother and saying this guy's like Patrick Vieira who is this guy like what's he doing here and he went on to have a good spell at Stoke um, it, we were all very disappointed when, when we sold him um, but we managed to sign Glenn Whelan on the same day who came in and did, a, did another fantastic job for us so but he he would always be welcome back at, at Stoke for a hard time draw or anything like that I'm sure lovely lovely bloke um, great run mid-season this is 2003 to 4 including a 3-1 win at Vicarage Road did you make the pilgrimage down the M1 was that when Peter Hoekstra scored his wonderful volley perhaps I think um, so uh, around Christmas yeah, I went to Vicarage Road a few times. I think that was one of them. Another time was when we won one nil under Pulis, and that was a gift of Noel Williams' goal. Oh no! Um, yeah, I can't remember if he celebrated or not, but um, I can't quite recall. We haven't had such good luck um, at Vicarage Road in more recent years, unfortunately. Nope. And, uh, for us, anyway. Yeah, what was the result this season? Was it three two, or it was the game where the goal was scored, but? The what the Watford player just sort of bundled our goalkeeper into the net, or was that last season? I can tell you that it was uh, the 3-2 on November the 4th. Is Myla Saar in the last minute? Uh, Joao Pedro yes. with a penalty. We had three shots and scored three goals. This was a uh, Vladimir Ivic special. Uh, ben Wilmot played for us, and our midfield was. Chalabar, Kapu and Cleverly, and yours included John, Obi, Mikel and James McLean. Well, there you go. Contrasts. Indeed. Yeah, there was a very strange goal in that game, I remember. But they all count. Uh, The (laughs) 2002-2003 season is known as The Great Escape, uh, thanks to Paul Warhurst and Adi Akinbayi. What was the owner's view of that season this is you dispensed with mr the darson um whose three-year contract ran out um and despite him getting you um promoted at the third attempt yes what did the owners make of tony pulis yeah like you say gudgeon the darson was sacked two days after getting us promoted they'd fallen out the icelandic board and the icelandic manager to the point where they were no longer on speaking terms and they just couldn't envisage working together beyond where he'd taken us to. So we originally appointed Steve Cottrell, who came in in the summer of 2002. He, yeah, he quit by October to go be assistant manager at Sunderland. So something wasn't right with the club. And the Icelandic board was starting to get cold feet they were starting to think this isn't the project we thought it would be the fact that they'd already dispensed with their own countrymen you know and thrown over decision making to the to the English members of the board we still had Peter Coates on the board in a minor role but he was then thrust into okay you're gonna have to make decisions because we, we basically can't be asked anymore they initially tried to appoint George Burley he came to watch us at home to Watford actually we lost, I think, 2-0, and the next day George Bailey said, I'm not taking Stoke City job. There was a frantic rush. The next name on the list was Tony Pulis. He came in and basically took one look at the squad and said, it's not big enough, too many nice guys, not enough experience. 
I'm bringing in Mark Crosley, Paul Warhurst, Paul Williams, Marcus Hall, Adi Akinbae. After a really rough start, including his first game where the fans chanted, you don't know what you're doing at him, we eventually got to staying up on the last game of the season thanks to a winning goal by Akinbae against Reading at home. And what looked like an instant return back to League One turned out to be, um, like you say, a great escape and we were able to kick on from that. The closest I've been to... Uh, final day dramas that I was uh, I was at the Hive a few seasons ago. Barnet were fated to go down, but there was a chance that they'd stay up. Um, but I've never been at a ground when a club has survived. But just as we saw with Derby the other month, to get to that position is scandalous with that kind of club. So I know that you would have had a bit of relief and it would have been great and you could plan for the next season but just imagine Stoke City going to no disrespect I don't know Stevenage yeah I guess the fact that we'd come from that position of course. Uh, the year before um, meant that we weren't sort of kidding ourselves that we had a divine right to be in the championship or anywhere above that at the time um, and we were battling it out with Sheffield Wednesday who just got relegated this season as well um, it was Stoke, Sheffield Wednesday, Brighton and, and Grimsby actually so they've all gone in very interesting directions since then the, the way that Tony Pulis had come in and stabilised us and got us to actually be able to defend which is his greatest strength we were now thinking okay well let's not let ourselves get into this position again and to, to his credit we didn't and to the club's credit we didn't get into that position again until a couple of years ago, but it was um, it was it was a time where we really had to make make progress. And by the time Tony Pulis left for his from his first spell, we were a mid-table Championship club that we were at a crossroads of which way are we going to go from here. And I'm sure that the owners thought that as well. The book Twinned with Reykjavik is very good about the motivations uh, for the Icelanders coming in, and of course there were several members of playing staff, including ex-Watford player Brunjar. Brunjar, son of Gunnar, um, who managed under Guthjon, son of Thordar. And then uh, Gudjon's son was brought in. This is uh, Bjarni Gudjonsson, whom you call underrated. Do you think Bjarni is the most fondly remembered player from the Icelandic contingent? I think those are the two. So Brynjar, as you know, and I'm sure Reading fans know, very solid, very steady central midfielder. He was our record signing at the time, and he did look the part. He, he took to English football like a duck to water. Bjarni came in, like you said, he already had the stigma of being the manager's son. So if he was getting in ahead of someone else that fans might have preferred, then there was going to be some criticism or a few eyebrows raised. He could never fault his work rate. He was always the first out to be warming up. He was always he always kept going. He had this sort of body shape that he had sort of Jed and Shakiri like, and he was sort of like a little block of a man that didn't really look like he could go for ninety minutes, but he he, he could eventually. He, he had to get better, and I thought he got better. And he he was very instrumental when we won the auto windscreens shield in 2000 he won the free kick and took it quickly to get the winning goal against Bristol City which was a big moment for the club and he also scored and assisted in the playoff final for the division two playoff league one 
at the Millennium Stadium where um, we beat Brentford 2-0 to get back into the Championship. So I think he was underrated. He got, he got a lot of stick. Some fans didn't like him, others did. It's often the way with these more creative types at Stoke City. You either think he's brilliant and you know can't do any wrong, or you think, oh, he doesn't work hard enough, he, isn't, he doesn't get the game, or, or things like that. So um, I did think he got a lot of stick, and I think he's looked back fondly now from Stoke fans, though. Who scored the first goal of the Pozzo regime? It was in a League Cup tie against Wickham. And he's someone you speak to okay. for your book. Is it Chris Is it Chris Iwellumo? Chris Iwellumo, who was dancing yes. when Steve Cotterell left Stoke <laughs> in 2002. What a lovely man he is. Um, he, he is, is now in the media. Guy. He did a bit of BBC Sport coverage and he's... Um, his post-football career will always be coloured by the miss. Although you note that he did have a miss, uh, either in a playoff final or a semi-final or a league game. That's right. So, yeah, first of all, Chris is top, top guy. We spoke for a couple hours. Um, he obviously looks back fondly on his time at Stoke and, and his other clubs as well. And just a really interesting guy to chat to. He, yeah, he had a miss in the playoff semi-final at Cardiff at Ninian Park when we were 1-0 down and looking for our equaliser over the two legs. And it was almost a carbon copy of his miss for Scotland in that the ball came across the six-yard box and he somehow managed to balloon it wide and over from six yards out, maybe less, in front of goal. Um, Fortunately, that didn't come back to haunt us, so it's sort of not really remembered as anything other than a funny moment, I guess, in what was otherwise a pretty dramatic game. When Steve Cottrell joined the club, Chris had played under Steve at Cheltenham uh, on loan from Stoke. And Chris remembers that um, Cottrell would make him travel to Cheltenham every day, even when he was injured, to be at the club for rehab. He couldn't stay in Stoke and do it or wherever he wanted to. And he felt immediately ostracised by him when when he, when he Steve Cottrell joined Stoke. He, first, the only signing Steve Cottrell made was a free transfer, Chris Greenacre, who was a striker that came in from Mansfield. And Uluma was immediately down the pecking order. When he was given his chance, he took it. He scored some goals. But he, by the time he'd started to repair his relationship with Cottrell, uh, Steve Cottrell left to go join Sunderland. And this is... so, but, but he was happy to see the back yeah. of him. And this is especially sad because Iwellemo, along with Dion Burton, started the famous day. Is it Stoke City's greatest post-Sir Stan Matthews day? The... Um promotion in the playoff final against Brentford? We certainly haven't had many. You can count on one hand the events of moderate success at Stoke since then. So in the 70s, 1972, we won our only trophy, which was the League Cup. We had the um, we won the Autoglass Trophy in 92, the Auto Windscreens Trophy in um, 2000, or Windscreen Shield. It was a big shield thing, actually. Then there was the promotion. So to that point, it was probably our second biggest achievement mm. post Stan. It was at Millennium Stadium and it was a great day out, yeah. It was it was something special. Well, especially because the South Stand dressing room curse was lifted. I'd, I'd love how there's this banner saying, dressing room curse, my arse. Someone had made that banner on the, so that if you could win, you could wave the banner. But imagine if you had lost that game... As you'd lost the semi-final in 2001, as you'd lost the semi-final against Gillingham, was this Tony Pulis's Gillingham in 2000? Um, it was 
was, I think it might have been Peter Taylor's. Yeah, yeah, where you were down to nine men in the second leg, and the referee was... Rob Styles. Rob Styles, he who should not be named. He looks a bit like Voldemort <laughs> as well. Was the worst moment of the Icelandic regime losing two players to Cardiff City? You don't have to mention who the players were. <laughs> That's, it's quite all right. I'm happy to mention them. Yeah, so by this point, we'd lost those two playoffs in consecutive years. The second to Walsall, where we capitulated in the second leg. So whereas the Gillingham game, we sort of felt hard done by and quite proud of our team. By the time we lost to Walsall in the, the next season, we were very unhappy. We felt like we'd blown it. We, the manager made some bizarre decisions. And then as the new season started, we first sold Graham Kavanagh to Cardiff, who were now under Sam Hammam's regime and raiding the leagues for the most expensive players and were going all out for promotion. And then we sold Peter Thorne, who was our top scorer for so many years before that, to Cardiff as well, a few months later. So they'd signed our best two players, our long-standing players, they were going for promotion. We were going for promotion. Cardiff fans had a bit of a reputation at the time for being quite boisterous, let's say, on away days. So we already had a few hairy moments with them leading up to this point. So by then, we really didn't like Cardiff and we just sold our two best players. Things weren't looking great. And then came, um, as Mamma Mia says, it's called karma and it's pronounced ha. Um, when. <laughs> When in the semi-final, it, um, the most famous arse outside Jordan Sakiri's for, um, <laughs> for um, Stoke. Uh, this Suleiman Ulare, this is cult hero in excelsis. Uh, never mind Neil Baldwin. I think Ulare, if you stick his arse on Neil Baldwin, that's the ultimate Stoke City cult hero. That's like, the, yeah, build, build the castle and put him right in the middle of Hanley City Centre, a massive statue of the guy. Yeah, Suleiman Ulare was um, uh, a signing. Uh, he was, he's Ghanaian and he came in from, I think, the Belgian leagues. And he came on as a substitute at the start of the season and immediately went off injured. He had a blood clot. It was life-threatening. We didn't see him again. So he played about five minutes of football. He emerged out of nowhere for the second leg at Cardiff where we were losing 2-1. We'd equalised late on to get take it to extra time. On comes Suleiman Ulare, midway through extra time, an innocuous free kick deflects in off his arse, sends the keeper the wrong way. He's got the winning goal. He never even plays for us again after that. He doesn't play in the final, and he moves he moves back um, to uh, Europe, I think, after that. And so he came, he went, he did his job. He's a hero. Everybody loved him. Very few people saw anything of him, but there he is. Legend of Ulari's arse. No, we have... There's The legend that I have is that I was at Blackburn in 2012 and Jean-Alain Fanchon played left wing-back, subbed at half-time, never saw him again. Uh, so it, it, I'm, I'm glad that we have this affinity with players who appear, then disappear. Uh, the best anecdote in the book involves a guy called Anton Booth, whom, if he is listening, hello. Uh, is Anton still with us? Yes, I believe so. So that's TJ. So you were talking earlier about the origins of Delilah. The, the, the sort of accepted theory is that Anton Booth, a.k.a. TJ, started singing it at um, in the pub before a game um, because they were told to stop swearing. So they said, oh, we'll sing Delilah then. Carried on singing it 
to the ground, carried on singing it in the ground, it caught on and became our song. So TJ's sort of a a well-known Stoke City fan amongst other Stoke fans. And I remember one time I was heading to an away game and we were going. I was going with all my friends. We were going on coach. A few years before that, Stoke fans had been quite troublesome on away days. So we had to have ID cards to attend the games. This time I forgot my ID card about 10 minutes before the coach was set to leave. So I had to trudge off the coach and I went to the club shop to call a taxi to go home. And for some reason, TJ was there in the club shop. And he said, um, oh, I'll run you home. What's up? I said, well, I forgot my ID card. Oh, don't worry about it. I said, well, the coach is leaving. Just leave it with me. So then five minutes later, he pulls up outside, takes me back to my home in Penton, about 10, 15-minute drive, brings me back. All the coaches but one have left. And um, I get on and off I go. And it's like, oh, I didn't realize he had so much power and able to hold back the, the coaches if yep. he needed to for some strange yeah just some strange and then we went and uh, I think we drew nil-nil with Reading so it was all <laughs> worth it <laughs> that's football fandom never mind big six legacy fans and everything else uh, one of the questions that I keep asking during uh, these football library chats and you do get your laminated football library card with Brian Glanville's face on it you're used to libraries so have another library mm-hmm. card um, actually, do you miss academic libraries? So, uh, it's, uh, do I miss academic libraries? No, not really. Right. They became, they can become a bit of a tedious place when people start using them to socialise. I'm yep. an old curmudgeon who just wants to do my work. It's not a social club, it's library for books. Uh, the question I keep asking people, what's more important, the 90 minutes of football or the many, many minutes outside of the football? And I've come to the conclusion, overwhelmingly, it's not about the football. It's not about the two halves of no. 45 minutes. It's everything else. I mean, you've, do you feel that you are close as human beings to your dad and your brother and when she was alive to your late mum because you were all Stokies? Yeah, I mean, you're right. Often the 90 minutes of football is the worst part of the day. The best part of the day is, yeah, going out with family and meeting up with friends in the pub before the game, going out afterwards, talking to people, friends, family, strangers, you know, anybody who... Who, who can um, who sat by you or walking with you? Yeah, it's always been the thing that that bonded us. You know, we'd always go on away days together in the car, and all the the excitement of that. Usually, the car breaking down or trying to find somewhere to park in the middle of Manchester and Moss Side and places like that. Yeah, I love those anecdotes. And Oldham, the story about Oldham remember. is scary. Yeah, so Oldham. We played Oldham away towards the end of, um, I think it was 2001 season, maybe. Or That's so. when the rights yeah. were, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we needed to win to get into the playoffs. And it, it, we were playing them at a time when the, the Oldham riots were, were occurring. And a lot of people jumped on the, the chance to go to Oldham and cause trouble. You know, there might have been some that were Stoke City fans, but there was a lot that had no connection to the club. National Front, BNP, all this stuff. They were chanting all sorts of horrible things. They were fighting with each other. They were fighting with Stoke fans, fighting with Oldham fans, running through the streets. And, you know, we just wanted to go and watch a game of football. You know, we didn't realise we were going to be in the middle of a what felt like a war zone. Yeah. Terrible day. We won, though. Two questions to finish. Are you going to write another book about Stoke? I have one idea, yes. Um, I'm going to sit on it for a while and first we'll see how this one's received because if it's received 
not very well, then maybe I'll change my mind. No, but, um, it'll be fine. I've, it's a great book. I've got one idea for another Stoke book, which um, involves our, our near neighbours, Port Vale, as well, which when I have a little bit of time, I might sit down and put pen to paper and, and see if I can make a, a worthy manuscript for that. So it's in my mind. But I bet you're looking forward to exploring Montjuic and uh, Sagrada Familia properly. Do they have, is it is the Sagrada a vaccine centre at the moment? I don't know if it's reopened recently because the state of alarm's just been lifted in Spain, um, but it's been closed. It's been very bizarre to, to walk by it at night and have absolutely no people around it for these past 12 months. I got on a train a at Charing place. Cross last week at five o'clock. I had a whole carriage to myself almost. It's so surreal. It is, that's the word, surreal. Surreal. Uh, quite an easy final question, Liam Bullock, author of Twinned with Reykjavik, to finish with. Uh, what I want you to do is to name two opposing 11s. One made up of players from the Iceland era, which you write about in this book, from 1999 to 2006, and then Stanley Matthews and any 10 others before or since 2006. So Iceland era versus Stanley Matthews plus non-Iceland era. Wow, okay. I'm going to have to think about this. Please do. Um, I can help I... you out with the likes of... Uh, I'll rattle off some names. Uh, Ed DeHoy, Jerry Taggart, Clint Hill, Michael Dubery, Marlon Brooms, Luke Chadwick, all played and signed in the era of Pulis, Boskamp, um, and the Icelandic regime. Yeah, we definitely had some very interesting names that came from the UK as well as from abroad. Yeah, Ed Devoy would be a good choice for goalkeeper. He was a character. We also had another Icelandic goalkeeper that was named Berka Christensen, um, who was related to a member of the board, which was sort of something hmm. that became quite typical of the time. He was a bit of a character as well. He wasn't that good, but we, we enjoyed watching him wave his arms around for a few months. We had a really good right-back called Mikael Hansen, who was very akin to these modern right-backs, bombing down the wing, getting forward, being our best attacking option. We had a centre-off called Sergei Stanuk, who was a mountain of a defender. He looked like even Drago from Rocky IV. <laughs> uh, he, he came from Belarusia, and he was just... He could have gone to the top level, but I think his family were homesick, and he wanted to go back east, so he never, he never made it, but he was a really good defender. Who else did we have? Yeah, Michael Dubery. Dubes, good character. John Eustace in midfield. Uh, Brynjar Gunnarsson, if we're going to keep that theme of, of the Stoke Watford connection. Thank you. Peter Hoekstra. Peter Hoekstra on the left wing, um, former Dutch international, former Ajax player that was just the most skillful player I'd ever seen at the time. Um, no idea how he ended up in, in League One with Stoke City, but I'm thankful that he did. I'll put Bjarni Johnson on my right wing for, for what I spoke about earlier. I always was a fan of his. Peter Thorne, my favourite player as a kid, had the name on the back of the shirt. And oh, then I'm so sorry. Cardiff. I'm sorry about that story. <laughs> it's in the book, but Le yeah. Learned my lesson, of course. And let's go Adiyaki Bai as well for his, for his moment in the sunshine against Reading and for being, for being an all-round good guy and good character that's a good uh, second tier team but will it will it do anything on a cold wet tuesday night at the britannia against the following 11 well if we put gordon banks in goal you're already right, up you've against won. it i think <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
who would we have in defence? You could have Mike Pedgick, my um, Demi Smith, who wrote the foreword for the book. Um, he was he's a Stoke City legend, local lad, member of my family, yep. part of the 1972 League Cup winning side. We, I would have to put Ryan Shawcross in there as well um, for a more modern Stoke City legend. Who else could we have? Obviously, Stanley Matthews, Jimmy Greenock, Alan Hudson. There's there's a lot. Isn't mm. there? I think I think even before we get to eleven, we've got a, a match winning team right there. Who's playing um, centre forward? Is it Hudson? Yeah, maybe let's put Mark Steen there. Maybe just because he's he's another one who's a cult hero and and was such a fantastic player for us. Oh, have you got a left back from any era? Is this any era? Um, because I'd quite like to put Danny Higginbottom there. I was always a fan of Danny, and I did catch his away, away shirt at Liverpool away in our first season in the Premier League, so I've got a soft spot for him for that. Yeah. Plus, he scored in the FA Cup quarter-final, which took us to Wembley, so I'm going to put Danny in there. And, and then, of course, what happens if the ball goes off the pitch anywhere 30 yards from the opposition goal? Who, um, who, would, who would put the ball back onto the pitch with a throw-in? There's only one man for the job, isn't it? And of course, it's Rory Delap. How many uh, goals did he assist? Has the stat been done? Uh, I'm sure it has. And the thing that wouldn't be included in there is all the, the chaos he caused, which also led to a goal, because he wouldn't always be directly, you know, Shawcross or Robert Hoof on the end of them. Often it would pinball around in the six-yard box and somebody would fall onto the ball and it would go in. And the other great thing about it was under Tony Pulis era, he would win a lot of corners from it because players would either deliberately put it out for a corner, yeah. like Boaz Myhill did, um, <laughs> or just from the throw-ins, it would be headed out for a corner. And it would waste a lot of time as well, which was a big part of Tony Pulis's, um philosophy. It, it would take a minute and a half for him to get the ball, run over to get the ball, wipe it with the towel, get ready, throw it in. You know, that would kill a lot of time. And there weren't many teams that really picked up on that as a, a time-wasting tactic. And he would also do it defensively as well. If we're winning late on and we've got the ball deep in our own half, he's just going to throw it past the halfway line and get it up the pitch. Yeah, I mean, the lap was a good player as well and that often gets overlooked. He was a really good midfielder for us. Yeah, you, you don't play for your country. But he will always be known. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he will always be known, though, worldwide for, for that throwing. Indeed. Can you name one super flop that you thought, right, this one's the winner? I know Bojan hit a bit of a, a rough patch mentally, but was there someone who really disappointed the Stokies in the second Coates era? Yeah, we've had quite a few, unfortunately, in recent years. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, uh, and that sort of led us to where we are today. We've spent big money on players. like We signed Saido Berahino in the um... hope that, you know, there's a good player in there somewhere, maybe we can find it. And he just, he never... He scored like one or two goals after several months of not scoring for us and then all the, the issues started coming to light of not turning up and managers falling out with him. We had Gianelli and Bula, who again cost big money, um, came in, looked like the business central midfielder. From, he came from French League. He then seemed to fall off the face of the earth, attitude problems, not wanting to be here. There's Kevin Vimmer, big money centre-half we signed from Tottenham. Had quite a decent reputation from Spurs fans. He was out of shape. He just 
the, the kicker for that was after we got smashed by Tottenham at Wembley Stadium when they were playing at Wembley. And after the game, he's laughing and joking with Son and Harry Kane and all this. And you just 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 do it in the tunnel, you know. Don't do it in front of people who've travelled and paid money and people who don't want to see our players laughing and joking after getting beat 5-0, you know. So... There's, there's quite a list. I'll, I'll leave it there because I'm getting depressed. Well, OK, it. OK, I will pick it up. You can't leave on a down note, especially at the football library where we are, where your book, Twinned with Reykjavik, uh, is on the shelves. Uh, if people want to contact you on Twitter, there is a way to do so. Yeah, I'm Liam underscore SCFC. Good. And can you name one player that we should look out for, maybe who has come down from Scotland in the Stoke City promotion attempt next season? We're, we're all very hopeful. Uh, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say his name because we don't want people to, to come in and take him from us. But Tyrese Campbell, um, he came through the Manchester City youth system and then moved to the Stoke City youth system. Started really well last season, um, scoring for fun. Then he got injured really badly and that's where our season took a nosedive. And hopefully he'll get a full pre-season and be back and ready to fire us to promotion next season. Otherwise, Stoke fans will be singing, why, 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 Delilah? And I hope you get back to the Britannia at some point. Is there, um, I haven't really talked about Stoke Alona, because that might be the, um, someone else's book, but is there a Stoke City fan base in Barcelona that you're going to meet up with during the Euro to watch Spain demolish everyone? We do have a, um, a Catalan Potters, um, yeah. I think they're from outside Barcelona, but there'll be some from inside as well. They're, they're, they're our main... Well, they're our, I'm sure they're our only group of Stoke City supporters out here in Catalonia. So they're the ones that make the pilgrimage over to, to Stoke every now and then from from Barcelona and sample the delights of the pottery. So they're the ones I'll have to keep my eyes out for. Magnifico. Hasta luego y gracias por todas, Liam Bullock. Um, have a wonderful hot summer as you explore Barcelona and Catalonia. Thank you very much. Muchas gracias. Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library!